it was it was like a really big mistake. So so my relationship with my father was was damaged. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Paul Boardman. So I found out that you were a celebrant and I didn't really know what that was. I imagined you said you were a funeral celebrant. And at the time I thought, are you a seat filler? You know, I thought that maybe that meant you go to funerals when there's not enough people (laughs) and you sit there and you act like someone who is there, you know, for that person. But that is not what you do. Can you tell me a little bit about what it is that you do? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, thank you for having me. It's really my privilege to be here. Um, So I'm a funeral celebrant. And really what that is to break it down is that I help families say their goodbyes. So I guess you could say I'm a chaplain for the unchurched. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's really what it is in a nutshell form. So then how would you go about learning enough about the person who has died to speak about them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, so the process is fairly straightforward. I'll typically go to the family's house and I will, you know, meet with them in their living room um, and ask a bunch of questions about, first of all, the elements of the service, the order of the service. For example, if they're spiritual but not religious, if they want a prayer, um, maybe they'll want a blessing instead of a prayer. Um, maybe they'll want a, you know, some sort of poetry reading instead of scripture, and we'll determine sort of the elements of the service depending on their faith walk. And then and then after that sort of concluded with the family, we'll sit around for a couple hours and just do what I call a story download of the person, their loved one's stories, kind of who they were, who they left behind, what the landmarks of their life were. Um, and, you know, just, just they'll just have fun telling their person's story. And I'll take me really detailed notes. So then, you're, you're balancing listening and recording yes, what they're saying. Yes. And then I'll go back and just try to put that in narrative form. You know, a eulogy is literally to tell the story of the good. And then I'll send to them what I have in the narrative form, the gifts, the gift of the stories that they've given me. And then I'll send that to them to edit, to, you know, check for co- tone and color. And um, that will become the eulogy for the person on the day of the service, on the funeral or memorial service. And when you're talking to people, and I'm, I don't know how many people, how many of these you've performed yet, how many do you think you've done? Uh, well, I've done hundreds, but um, like, for example, just to give you an idea of, in terms of numbers, 2019, I will, I'm on track to doing about 150 wow. this year. How do people react? What is the feeling in the room when you're collecting information? I wonder if there's some self-consciousness at all on the part of the family that their loved one who has died and their family don't have an attached church and are talking to someone who doesn't know them at all to tell them what to say about their loved one. I find it's like a time of tremendous um, 
kind of relief, you know, the, the, the storytelling time, because, you know, it might be the first time that they've actually started talking about their person after that, after their loved one has died. So I just find it um, to be mostly very healing for, and, and they're happy to talk about, you know, their person. They're happy to hear, to answer questions about their loved one. It's just, so it's really a, um, a time of great healing, I find. How does it affect you generally, maybe not on a daily basis, but how do you negotiate what you do for a living with your own sense of mm. life? Mm. Well, so the, so the way I frame it is that grief stories are love stories. So I feel like I have the great blessing to enter into these families' lives and to hear their you know, big raw moment and experience their love stories. Um, so I feel like I'm immersed in love stories is the way I kind of go about my work. It seems like a job that not everyone could do. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it kind of has this quality of like, I feel like I really enter into, you know, this family's life in a really raw moment. Um, so there's kind of vulnerability and empathy, but at the same time, I do feel blessed that they're sharing their life and their loved one's life with me. So I just, I just feel a lot of gratitude. And you, you come to, would you call this church work or would you call, what would you call mm. it? I mean, cause you're not affiliated with the church. Correct. Which is interesting because your parents were missionaries. Right. Yeah. So. How does it feel to you to be untethered to a specific church when your family was? And actually, why don't you tell what a little bit about your background mm -hmm. and and how that happened? That that like how long your parents were missionaries? Yeah. So my um, so yeah, my parents were missionaries to Japan, Christian, Protestant, evangelical, conservative Christian missionaries. And you know, right after the war, World War Two. There was a big um, mission movement throughout the world, um, and a lot of returning GIs kind of went back out into the world, including my dad. So in 1951, he went over to Okinawa, which is the which is where he actually got wounded um, in the Battle of Okinawa. And so you're saying he went back to the to site be a of missionary, his yeah, to yeah, dis despite so after he recovered from his injury, he went back and he had this burden to save the souls of the Japanese. Um, so he went back in 51 and then he and my mother were writing letters. And of course this took about two and a half um, weeks per letter to get to their person. And then in 1953, so she became Mrs. B in 1953 in, in Japan. And um, so they they were missionaries for all those years, like through through to the I don't know late eighties. Do you have siblings? I have. There's so there's five of us. There's yeah. five. Mm -hmm. Did so. What was the climate like at home mm. with this being the work that your parents did? Yeah. So really, um, you know, the most impactful thing was that my parents kind of had this view of the world that we were supposed to be in it in the world but not of it 
And so that was that was kind of highlighted, almost exacerbated because we were these, you know, with this white missionary family in the middle of Japan. And this is the 60s and 70s in Japan, right? So not the sort of hip, cool place that it is today. Um, not, not the fashionable place that it is today. But we um, were, uh, we went to a boarding school for uh, missionary kids. So there was, there's about um, 500 uh, children, you know, from various different denominations from first through 12th grade. And we um, were taught by other missionaries. And it was just kind of this really closed community of conservative evangelical American Christians plunked down in the middle of Tokyo. Where are you in the birth order? With your I'm right in the middle. You're right in yeah. the middle. So kind of the, you know, kind of middle of the road, kind of negotiate up and down both sides, yeah. Do you feel like your siblings and you were on the same page about missionary work or being children of missionaries? Yeah, so that's a good question. You ask really good questions. Oh, that's yeah, good. Yeah, um, so we, we're really close even today, you know, as adult siblings. Um, but I think what really brought us close together was there was this sense of um, pressure from our parents to be, you know, good, <laughs> to be holy, to be Christian, to be, and and if you weren't, um, you got there were there were pretty dire consequences, you know, corporal punishment, beatings, and when so would it, those occur though if you were at boarding school? Uh, well, we were so we went to the boarding school, but we were one of the few families who actually lived close to the boarding school, and then um, could live at home. That's what that's what my parents chose to do. So we we lived at home, and um, we experienced you know a fair amount of um, you know again sort of pressure from 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 my parents to to be good to be Christian and um so did you find that to be a struggle for you uh yes I did because so, why well you know I mean what, whether so so one of the struggles was just of course just being um a kid you're you're not you're not necessarily um going to you know kind of live out the expectations of your parents and and so when that would happen when you when you you know screwed up um, the consequences were fairly dire um, with, you know, being a sensitive child, um, you know, fairly severe beating. So, so that I felt like really brought all of the, the siblings together because they could experience in this very um, uh, sort of primitive house with no insulation in the walls, they could experience the kind of trauma that their sibling was experiencing um, down the hall from them. And, um, you know, there was always silence in the house, like really, really, really strong silence when there was uh, a punishment happening. And I think that that's what really brought us together because we could never be, we could never reach that perfection, right, that mm -hmm. was expected of us. And so now all of us are very like-minded. We're, um, we're very close. So you banded together when your parents, or was it both parents who who? It was my you? dad. It was really my dad. Yeah. How did your mom, from to the best of your knowledge, 
seemed to feel about the corporal punishment. I think she was conflicted about it, to be honest with you. And so my dad was, uh, so we, so we were, we were based in Japan. We were, he was missionary to Japan, but he was also responsible for the work in Indonesia, Korea, Singapore, and other places around Asia. So he would travel a lot, sometimes as much as six months of the year. And every time he would go ab abroad, um, my mom was instructed to keep notches for all of the, you know, sort of crimes and misdemeanors that we would um, do as children. And because, she, it, because it was determined that she wasn't sort of strong enough to deliver the right punishment, to mete out the right punishment for the kids. So we... Um, so when my dad would get back from his trip, uh, she would give to him, and I'm sure she, you know, probably uh, subtracted a few. I was going to ask. You know, I'm sure she tallies. did. I'm sure she did. Um, but still, like it was, it was a fair, fairly big trauma to have him come back, and then you knew you were going to face whatever it was, the punishment that was tallied up over the course of, let's say, a month or two weeks or a week or whatever. So are you saying that when your father returned, you would also know that that's when you were going to get your absolutely. punishment? Yeah, absolutely. So was there ever a positive anticipation for your dad's return? No. Um, it was It was like a really big mistake. So, so my relationship with my father was was damaged because of it. Really, um, there was, so, but there was there was a little bit of conflict. So he would he was also a gift giver. Hmm. When he would go to Indonesia or Singapore, he would bring back something for each of the children. And so the first thing when you when when he came back and you you know met and you greeted him, it was um, gathering around the living room, and he would you know, give out his gifts upon returning from his trip. And, but then the second thing was this sort of dreaded punishment that you would experience. Did he go in order of age of the SIBs or in order of offenses? I think it was order of offenses and, and probably the highest expectation might have been on me, the oldest son. I don't know. Oh, so you were the middle, but the oldest son. Yeah. In a patriarchal, you know, family. Yeah. Did you feel that your sisters, your older sisters, took you under their wing or took care of you? Yeah, there was protection. There was protection, but they also were vulnerable. You know, um, I think they were very vulnerable. We all felt our, we all felt each other's vulnerability. I understand what you mean about. I mean, it's 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 good that at least in in the face of all that abuse, you had each other. I've. I was mean to my sister, I'm the older one, but I would always protect her, you know, and same, I didn't face same. corporal punishment in my family, but I would always be loyal to my sister no matter what. Um, we're two and a half years apart. I do think there's something there, but there are families where it's every kid for themselves and they don't protect each other and they go after each other too. And I think it's, it's. Uh, I'm glad to hear for the, kid you were that at least you had each other yeah it was there was like a real sense of solidarity amongst the children was there ever a moment where i don't know how young the youngest was but was there ever a moment when you you or your sibs as far as you know felt like okay this is too much this kid is too small to get this punishment we want to protect that kid more or fight back 
Uh, what I would say is that um, I think my dad mellowed out sort of as each child came on board. And so probably my first, my oldest sister um, experienced probably the worst punishment. And then my second sister, and then maybe me as the oldest son. But then it leveled off with my younger brother and my youngest and my younger sister. Um, so my youngest sister uh, was probably the least vulnerable, I would say. And I'm happy about that, of course. When you get together as adults now, do you talk about it at all? Oh, oh yeah, we talk about it. Um, for the most part, <laughs> not everyone. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my oldest sister probably experienced the most uh, trauma and is probably the least uh, able to talk about that. Do you think that your mom was afraid of your father? Uh, yeah, there was there was a little bit of fear, I think. Um, so he was a Marine. He was a wounded in, in the Battle of Okinawa, yeah. World War II. And uh, he was sort of a, you know, what you'd call a returning kind of war hero. And uh, I assume then, he was a big man. He was a big man. Because you're six, really three. tall. How yeah, tall are six, you? I'm 6'5". Yeah, you're 6'5". Yeah, he you was 6'3", uh, and he was sort of um, kind of more robust and I'm kind of lanky, but he was quite big. And, and uh, yeah, so, so his sort of marine, so a lot of things, right? The era, the that particular generation, um, old school generation, and then the Marine thing. And then the, th the biggest one though, was the, was the Christian patriarchal system that meant that he was head of the household and everything that he said, you know, was, was the law. And, um, so it, Early on, when you when we just started this conversation, the first thing that uh, we talked about was me being a funeral um, celebrant. So I've been to and have presided over hundreds of services. But really, to this day, the most interesting funeral I've ever been to was my dad's. Tell me about that. Um, because probably about a week, not quite a week before he passed, he had sort of last rites and confession to his pastor and he exhorted his pastor to share what he had told his pastor so none of us of course knew so the whole family all all five siblings were there and my mom and about i don't know 300 people he was a you know sort of well-respected man of god so it was very well attended and um the pastor got up Pastor Jan, and he said, well, uh, Bordy, Bob, um, wanted me to share with you his three regrets, the three regrets of his life. And the first regret he had was that he ran roughshod over his wife. And my mom was mortified. She was like looking around, you know, like, denying that there was anything wrong. It was like she had been exposed and she just did not want to, it was like dirty laundry, I guess. Um, 
So the first thing um, was that he said that he had run roughshod over his wife. And his second regret was that he was way too rough on his children. And uh, and all of, all of us adult siblings are sitting there going, this is 10 years ago, going, wow, that's, you know, that's quite something to yeah. kind of confess that posthumously, right? And then, um, and then the third regret uh, was that he didn't have any friends. Yeah. And it was true. He was so busy being a man of God. He was so busy um, kind of living up to God's expectations that he, and setting the example for others, uh, being holy, that he kind of forgot how to just kind of hang out and be with people and you know, he never he never drank, but what I would call the equivalent of sort of drinking a beer with his buddies, you know. Yeah. So he just didn't really have any friends. He had sycophants and disciples and, you know, kind of what admirers. Do think about someone who is able to say that after they die. What did how did that change your or did it change your feeling or impression of your father? Yeah, at first, I think there was some feeling of, um, you know, kind of at in the moment, it was a feeling of like, well, why didn't he say that to us face to face, like a little too late, dad. But in time, as it's sort of, um, as, as I've been able to, you know, digest it over a decade, I think, wow, that's, that's kind of amazing that he was willing to kind of smash down the pedestal that had been built up around him in his life and just kind of, you know, kind of smash the myths about himself as the perfect sort of man of God, the example. Well, um, you're right. He could yeah. have easily left it the he way have it easily was left and, it. and leave the impression to people that he was satisfied with all of his choices yeah. and that he was infallible. Yes. So I, I, I accept it as um, him being kind of great that he was able to do that. Do you forgive him? Yeah, I do. Interesting. That didn't sound real convincing. Did it? <laughs> no, yeah, I do. You kind of looked around the room for a minute. Yeah, no, I do. But I, what I regret is, I, you know, um, because of those three regrets, what he expressed, I, I don't, you know, our attachment, our bond was broken, right? So I, I don't have the kind of relationship. I never did have the kind of relationship um, with him that I would have wanted or that I sort of imagine the ideal father-son relationship to be. I don't have that. Do you, do you talk to him in your head ever? Um, very rarely, uh, very rarely. And, you know, like after he passed, I, I did, um, you know, it was like I was harboring a secret and I've, I was harboring a secret that now I see when I do all these funerals and talk to families that, you know, I wasn't as close to him as I imagined a father, a son should be with their father, right? So I was feeling a little bit like sort of like, I don't know, inadequate, it's not the right word, but I just like, I didn't have the right kind of relationship that I should have had. And, and um, of course I see that so often with families, you know, a person dies and then people 
kind of imagine how they should be mourning or they imagine like what, what kind of loss they should be feeling. And then maybe they're actually feeling relief. And Do you sense that when you talk to people? I sense it. I sense it. No, I mean, I can't say that I'm, you know, accurate all the time, but I, but I, I tend to pick up on some vibrations that are, um, you know, for example, the, the, the feeling of relief, um, not only that their person has, you know, kind of ended their suffering, but that somehow they're, they're released from the expectation of being, you know, of having to have been in a relationship that is the perfect relationship or the right relationship that they imagined they should have been in. When you think about yourself as a younger, what a kid, or I don't even know into adulthood or teenage years, did you blame yourself for your father's behavior? That's a good question. Um, well, I, no, I don't think I. I don't think I. You know, placed the blame right with him, but it was more about sort of the the overarching milieu of being you know brought up in a Christian school and environment where. You know, we would go to chapel every week or maybe even every day, actually. Um, and and um, oftentimes, you know, you've probably heard it, you've heard of it, but have you ever heard of the altar call? No. Okay. The altar call is where, you know, you experienced in a, in a, in a revival meeting so much inspiration, so much calling from God that you go up to the altar and the act of going up to the altar is recognizing that you need to turn your life around, that you need to submit to God, that you need to, you know, sort of in some way change your life to be more pleasing to God. So the altar call is just like this thing that um, was kind of ever present growing up where you continuously sort of resubmit your life to God and you return your life over to God. Um, so I was doing that all the time, which, which basically means, you know, that you, you recognize that you're not measuring up. You recognize that you're feeling your sinful nature rather than your holy nature. And you, and you, and you, you have a longing for the, for, for being more holy. Did that also um, connect with thinking if you could just, and stop doing the things that got you hurt by your father, or if you could just be okay with the fact that he was punishing you because that's Christian. If dad's doing it, then it must be right. How did you try to negotiate that with, with God and Christianity? That's a really good question. Yeah, it's really good. Um, well, you know, I think part of it is that you don't question, you don't question, um, it's like I didn't question him like my dad because it was just the way it was. And he was sort of, he was sort of um, the mediator of God's displeasure, right? So, so what you're experiencing is the displeasure of God, essentially. And, and through your father, through my father, yeah. So, and you could say that it's capricious, right? I mean, 
most of the time, I most of the time, like, and I and and I I'll say this in all honesty, I never like I don't remember what I was punished for necessarily. Maybe I said shut up to my sister, or you know, like it was it was it was it were the it was these things that you know didn't necessarily um, match like the punishment that that I would receive for that. And I remember. I remember going to my room after getting these, they call them, you know, we call them spankings. And you had to, and it was very humiliating because you had to pull down your pants. Um, so. In front of siblings or? No, just, you know, just um, with, in the bedroom of my parents. So you're, 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 you know, you're on your own, but you have to pull down your pants. And, and so. And then if, and your natural reaction, of course, is to protect yourself. But if you protect yourself by putting your hands in back of your ass, that will automatically add like, you know, five more lashes kind of thing. So you end up, you know, just submitting uh, like an animal and, um, well, like an animal wouldn't probably actually, but, um, right. Uh, and then you so so then you go to your room, right? And this is what I would kind of point out to families, for, to parents who still believe in corporal punishment. Mm -hmm. But you go to your room, and then and then you you're you're just occupied by so much hate, and it's like I didn't I didn't ask for this much hate, you know, like to 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 fill me, and. Um, so a lot of rage, right? That just didn't have anywhere to go, and you wouldn't, and you were, you were so proud, you you, were, you had so much pride that you didn't want to expose how hurt you were, so you would never like hit any. I would never hit anything, maybe maybe a pillow or a bed or something, but you just you just were filled with so much rage that, like I don't, what does a kid do with all that rage? Where did it go? I don't know. I'm trying to. Do better, be better. Um, Do you ever? You talked about that you realized your bond with your father was broken. A lot of people who experience abuse at the hands of their parents or caregivers find that they replicate those patterns. Mm, well, they some mm, don't at yeah, all, right? But they might struggle with those uh, urges or impulses or mm -hmm. rage that they don't know the source for mm -hmm. and they have to really work hard. Did you have to work hard in your life or have you had to work hard to kind of metabolize all of that history? Mm. That's a really good question. Well, so I guess you could, I guess you could, you know, like look at me and like figure out, try to figure out why I never had children. Did your siblings have place. children? Yeah. Everyone, all of my siblings do, but I never did. Um, so I guess you could, look at that and try to figure that one out. Um, um, How old were you when the the last, as far as you recall, corporal punishment mm -hmm. at your father's hands happened? Uh, I was um, probably 16 or 17. And why do you think they stopped at that point? Well, so at that point, at that point it was no longer submission, right? I mean, I was big enough and strong enough to sort of fight back. So the la so one one of the teen at the, the corporal punishment at the time that I was a teen was a was an all out brawl with my dad. Tell tell me about that. 
Well, it's very, yeah, it's very traumatizing actually to even like kind of recall it. And, and my, my sisters uh, were there. We were up in um, a cabin. This, this is actually probably like earlier than like maybe penultimate punishment or something, but um, it probably died down after that because um, I think I attacked my dad and, and he, he was stronger than I was. I mean, I was a lanky, skinny kid, even at, you know, 14, 15, 16. And, um, he, um, he held me up against the wall. I remember like, um, and I, I mean, I, I'm probably cartoon like exaggerating like the, the action, but I felt like I was up off of my feet being held against the wall by my neck. And then the next thing I knew I was like on the floor um, and yeah, so it was, it was because uh, you had fought back because I had fought back. You tried yeah. to resist and the spanking. I had tried the... to resist and he, um, wanted to sort of, what's that shock and awe, you know, like, you know, kind of overwhelm me with his force. And that wasn't good for our relationship either. Right. Obviously. Um, do you put that on yourself that the, do you have guilt about the fact that you fought? No, I don't. I don't. Were you the only sibling who fought back? That's a really good question. Um, so we we all rebelled in our own ways, right? And um, what I would say is that my oldest sister ran away when she was 17. Um, and she first sort of negotiated with my parents a um, kind of um, time away from the family. She went to this kind of commune in um, Switzerland called Labrie. And uh, she was there for a month. Um, and obviously she was she just wanted to be away from fam from family and the pressures of that household. But she ran away and eloped with her kind of hippie boyfriend at that time in Pennsylvania and left the household. And my dad's response was quite interesting um, and might have been a turning point for him with the other siblings, my younger siblings. But he um, wanted to don the Old Testament sackcloth and ashes in, to, to outwardly symbolize his mourning and his humility, right? And then um, and then he wanted to, but my mom prevented him in the end. He wanted to shave his head to go along with the sort of Old Testament um, sackcloth and ashes, more, you know, outward expression of mourning. Uh, so um, that was probably a turning point for him, you know. And What, what about that? particular memory beyond your sister leaving the house upsets you the most? I see the, the pain on your face and I know you had to stop to, to collect yourself and I'm wondering if it's about your father. Well, I think it's more about my sister. Um, You know, she had to get away. And um, 
but I guess it's also about my dad. You know, there was some sort of recognition of this too harshness even back finally. then, right? Yeah, finally. And um, and that's what was expressed at his funeral, right? Like, but did your did your fight with him when you were fourteen or fifteen happen after she ran I away? I think it happened after, actually. Yeah, I think it happened after. Did she stay married to the man she eloped with? No, she did not. So it um, seems like in your family, the biggest change happened when she ran away and in, in your family of origin when you fought your father back. Did he seem more tentative around you after that? Were you on notice that you were on thin ice or did he seem to respect you? I think it was. A, I think um, there was a little bit more respect, and then again, like I'm trying to convey also that there was a little bit of a mellowing. Mm. But then my next sister, who was a year younger than my oldest one, so so the the, the sister who was um, sort of second in the family birth order, um, she got married at 18, and um, that was her. Escape. That was her escape. Is she still married to that person? She is. Did you ever get married? Yeah, I got married when I was 21. Mm -hmm. And that lasted for about six years. And then I, I got married a second time. And I lasted 20 years. Wow. And, I'm, and I'm great friends with my ex. Wow, that's... Yeah. It's, um, it's always stunning to me when someone or people who experience so much trauma with relationship in their family of origin can sustain a healthy or somewhat healthy relationship in their adult life. Because I think it takes so much work to find yourself and how to be with someone in a, in a healthy way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it can, it can be, it's not for the faint of heart. Right. Um, and I guess, I guess what I would say though to that is, you know, like, I'm I'm talking a lot about sort of the trauma, and, you know, like um, and such. But you know, one of the sweet parts of my life growing up was with my siblings, right? And and that carried forward all through my life. And so, um, a lot of um, sort of intimacy and closeness and solidarity and friendship and love. Do you did you share that with your mom at all? Did, is your mom still alive? No, she passed nine months after my dad. Um, it's like she lost her job and taking care of him, kind of thing. So, did she, any of your sib siblings have a close relationship with her? Oh yeah, um, particularly my uh, youngest sister, who um, you know, and and they all had their they all had their children, so her grandchildren, and so that was a bridge to a better relationship with her. And you know, she was never the one to meet out the harsh punishments. Um, did you ever blame your mom at all for letting any of it happen? I did, you know, for maybe periods of my life, but. Um, How did you reconcile that? Mm. I well, I reconcile it just because you know it's kind of the 
it's just the system that's like that they that she inherited right you know it's like head of the household it's in the bible it's like scripted out and you say so you there was nothing really she could do about it that's the that's the story that's i mean that's not the story that's the role and and so she was um doing what she was supposed to be doing doing the best that she could and uh do you think mm-hmm. that particular way of raising children is alive and well do you think that in evangelical families or in general, I don't mean every single family, that that is still accepted? I, I would say like it was an old school version of what still is alive and well today in maybe American Christian evangelical circles. So, yeah, I mean, it's still alive. I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't run in those circles. I don't really associate very strongly, but you know, from what I can gather, it's still very much alive and well. Um, and isn't that sort of like authority and sort of, um, you know, model of leadership, why American evangelical Christians are choosing the leadership of the country at the moment? I mean. Strong, patriarchal. Yeah. Never wrong. Never wrong. Back up the man. Yeah. Yeah. So this brings me full circle to now that I've learned a little bit more about how you were raised and now you are doing spiritual work, but would you call it Christian work? So what I, what I, what I feel right now is that I, ironically, I feel sort of more Christian than I've ever felt before because, you know, I'm, I'm oftentimes right in the middle of rites and rituals which are very christian you know so so when we when we when we when we pray right we're 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 sort of submitting to the container for our um you know talking with god you know and so so when i when i pray now i feel really comfortable praying to this ground of being our, you know, our God. And it's, it's our way of, it's, it's like our permission to, to pray to, um, and to speak to the mysteries. So I, so I feel in a lot of ways, I'm more Christian than I've ever been before. When did you leave it? When did you leave that, your family's version of religion? It's been a journey. When I, so after I came back to the United States, after I left Japan and at, at 18, um, went to university and then I went to seminary. So I went to seminary for three years trying to work out sort of intellectually, you know, my own path, my own spiritual journey. And, um, and really it's been a long process whereby I've just been trying to figure out like how my faith and how my spirituality is, you know, sort of separate and different from theirs. But I think that probably the the turning point was um, my first divorce when I was twenty seven. Um, so when you, when one divorces, and and particularly in that community, like that is failure it's sin it's 
you know, it's it's a public recognition of of failure, right? And you know, I mean, you're you're messing things up, and you're not doing right by your promise and your vows, and so that was a that was really like a turning point for me, where I where I where I, I guess I finally had to say, well, I guess I'm not Christian anymore because I broke my vow to God. That to you is the sharpest indicator that you were no longer in that in that spiritual yes. umbrella that yes. was not your yeah. people anymore because of that? Because yeah. of what, what the religion said about you. Yes. Not because of a, a But that's separation. how I, I internalized it. I internalized yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah. And so now would you say that you are how would you describe your religion? I would say I'm, you know, Christian. <laughs> I, I would say I'm sort of Judeo-Christian. Like, yeah. um, so no, so I would call myself Christian um, because I still use the language of Christianity. I still use the language of prayer. I still, so, but for me, it's not, it's less about um, belief and theology than it is about just sort of like amazement and love. And so, you took out the barbs and the yeah. the harsh angles from what you grew up with. Yeah, I mean, I I'm Christian. I say prayers. I say I. You're a religious person. You're I'm, a spiritual yeah, I'm, I'm person. A, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, and then you know, like I, my my families are often spiritual but not religious, and sometimes the most. Sometimes the Christian, you know, Christians are really religious but not spiritual. Yes, I understand that. Yeah, but I, um, I just want to be open to it all. Do you, do you feel that your siblings are religious themselves now, or are they still? Mm. No, not really. Um, well, you know, they would they would they would probably describe themselves as as um spiritual but not religious um i would say probably to the last person they would yeah and the and so they've internalized right a lot of what was christian you know sort of the ethos and the feeling and the uh the longing for the transcendent but really like in this zeitgeist in this time they're going like wait a minute like those are Christians, like you know, it's it's it. There's a kind of reacquaintance with being Christian because, like, everyone who's calling themselves Christian that Christian that is sort of acting out ways that you don't feel you are attached to, are um, all of a sudden you feel like, hey, I'm maybe I am Christian, um, because that sure doesn't look or feel like it out there that you might be more rooted in it than you even yes. have to try to work for you just are yeah just really rooted i mean just like it's it's in the bones right did you finish seminary i, I did. know you wrote a manuscript about you have a manuscript my manuscript is really mostly about death care and um you know just the the crazy experience that it's been to be a living person among the dead and among the grieving. That's, that's what my manuscript is about.
I thank you so much for your, 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 your willingness to share your story and, and, um, I really appreciate you making the time to come in and to talk about the things that happen to you. Thank you, Roni. That's, it's really my honor to be here and just thank you for having me. Um, you know, I would say one of the things like in my job that I experience all the time is just the reminder that everything is so fleeting. And so I just, I'm just glad that I can have this experience with you. I'm glad kind of every day I live, I, I try to live my life out of gratitude and thankfulness. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would like to add? Um, you know, in the funeral industry, like the, there's some really funny phrasings when you, when you go into a funeral home and you like, let's say, greet a funeral director, you'll say like, you know, how, how are you today? And the funeral director will often kind of in a, in a funny way say, well, I'm on the right side of the grass, right? In other words, you're, you're not six feet oh. under, right? <laughs> you're on the right <laughs> side of the grass. My brain doesn't yeah. work like that. I, <laughs> yeah. So I was there's just like that's like yeah. a that's like a regular thing, right? And yeah. and and that's what I think your one is reminded. Um, that that's how you're re reminded to live every day if you're in the industry. And I don't know if you know the the musician Warren Zevon. He he's passed, but I think it was like four months before he passed. David Letterman asked him, "Do you have any advice for us as you're sort of you know befriending your death?" And he goes, "Yeah, enjoy every sandwich." <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Yes. It's again the same thing, just living life out of gratitude and thanksgiving. Yeah, and that that is that is a surprising takeaway from doing the work you do that rather than than living death you're living life mm -hmm. when you're celebrating death mm -hmm. yeah yeah thank you so much paul thank you thank you so much thanks for having me thank you for listening to and then everything changed to get new episodes as soon as they're out please subscribe and if you like this podcast please rate and review for more information, questions of the week, and community discussions, please visit www.andtheneverythingchangedpodcast.com or on Facebook at Facebook slash and then everything changed podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at and then everything changed PDcast. Thank you.